from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. But hey, everybody, welcome to the Green Entrepreneur podcast. My name is Jonathan Smoan, the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. With me today, I've got Dr. Roger McIntyre, who is a psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto, Canada. He is also the CEO of Champignon Brands. That's my French accent there. A science company focused on ketamine and psychedelic-based medicine as treatment for depression and other related conditions. The company operates two flagship clinics in Canada that have administered over 4,500 ketamine infusions. And I am fascinated in this topic and delighted to have Dr. McIntyre on the program today. Welcome. What a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I'm impressed with your French, by the way. (laughs) You know, you try. Um, Anyway, (laughs) so for those who don't understand what ketamine is, I didn't even know it was legal for human beings to take ketamine. So tell us a little bit about what ketamine is. Let me give you a very quick description of what it is and preface it with a chronology. Ketamine was synthesized from PCP. Everyone's heard of PCP. PCP was first synthesized in 1926. PCP was used in medicine, in anesthesia, actually, among other circles. And in 1962, ketamine was derived from PCP to create effectively a safer drug in the anesthesia operating room. In the 1970s year, the FDA approved it for that purpose, and it was categorized as, in quotes, a dissociative anesthetic. What does that really end of quote? What does that actually mean? Well, it's an anesthetic. And dissociative has different meanings, but what it was able to do was it was actually able to create a type of anesthesia that people would have a very rapid onset of anesthesia. It would be, uh, they wouldn't have severe respiratory depression and they would be able to recover very, very quickly. There's a bunch of sort of academic gobbledygook as to what dissociation really means in terms of dissociating certain parts of the brain connectivity. But what most people think about the dissociative anesthetic is a drug that causes dissociation. That's not exactly what it means. But dissociation simply means that your perceptions are altered to some extent of yourself, your body, your external world. Now, ketamine became a drug used outside of medicine for recreational purpose to people's peril, in other words, to the risk. It became a drug of abuse, so-called special K, and people abused it. And it still was abused in some parts of the world more than others. And only about, oh, maybe two decades ago, to be precise, 2000, the very first study appeared that was randomized and controlled. It was a rigorous study showing that it worked as an antidepressant. So now when we talk about ketamine, I think about what I call the four A's. Ready for this one? The four A's. It's an anesthetic. It's also an antidepressant. What are the other two A's? It's an analgesic. That is, it's a pain reliever. People take it for pain relief. And finally, it's an anti-inflammatory. And that's something that we are very interested in in more of the academic area. But my takeaway message is it has a very interesting history, interesting pharmacology, and has broad medical applications. So now you administer this ketamine to your, to your patients in sort of a microdose format. How does, tell me about how that works. Well, let's discuss with what microdose means. Microdose, when someone says the word microdose, that's a metric. Well, when someone says to me, how long is a piece of string? I have to answer, well, it depends. 
What's the metric? And so microdosing is a relative construct. We typically hear microdosing used in the psychedelic area. And typically what microdosing has meant, it's meant that a dose that doesn't cause any kind of immediate psychoactive effects. In other words, a lot of people will take a very low dose of psilocybin, which is the active moiety in magic mushrooms, but they don't experience any kind of trip, for example. That's a very common definition of what microdosing means. We don't use that language in ketamine. What we typically call it is sub-anesthetic dosing. Again, ketamine is an anesthetic. And the dose that we use as an antidepressant is a dose that's considerably lower than what would be used for anesthesia. People are awake, they're oriented, they're talking with our staff as they're getting the treatment. That wouldn't be typically the case when you're going for surgery, not typically. So we call it sub-anesthetic dosing, but you do have a psychological effect. Most patients report perceiving things around them a little differently, maybe just a little orientations, a little off, some lines may look maybe less sharp. Sometimes they even have more other experiences, like so almost zen-like experiences, or even type of you know, sort of more empathic experiences or very subjective kind of feelings of connectedness, things of that nature. But we don't typically call it microdosing. We typically call that sub-anesthetic. In other words, the dose that we're giving is much lower than anesthesia, but it still is psychologically relevant. And how does one qualify to be able to get a dose? It's really important to know that this is a scheduled drug. The Drug Enforcement Agency categorizes ketamine as Schedule Three. This is a drug that, you know, at the doses we're talking about, even though they're sub-anesthetic, this is not a drug you'd be, you know, picking up at the drugstore and walking home with it with a, in your pocket. This has to be given under strict medical supervision. It has to be given for people who have a diagnosed medical problem, like major depressive disorder, by people who have the appropriate credentials to safely administer this, which usually means nursing staff, in some cases, anesthesia staff, in some cases, psychiatric staff, but people who are credentialed to give you this type of treatment, which really translates into English that they have the credentials to provide cardiac support or even respiratory support in case there's any problems. The dosing that we give is low. It's called sub-anesthetic. We rarely get into any problems with it, but you know you want to make sure that your staff are well trained. It's a bit like a, a commercial airplane. Most times nothing happens, but when things happen, you want a well trained pilot steering the ship. So it's the same premise when it comes to you know, delivering ketamine. It should not be given at clinics that don't have that expertise and personnel, and should not be given to people outside of the conditions where it's been proven to be effective, like major depression. I will say just parenthetically that it looks very promising for people with bipolar depression and some promising data now in post-traumatic stress and obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, admittedly not studied as much in those conditions, and it would not be unreasonable for clinicians, again, who are credentialed to give ketamine, who also have, or their, their personnel and their team have expertise in PTSD or obsessive compulsive disorder, even consider this in some cases, that would not be unreasonable. But the preponderance of the evidence and certainly the momentum of this drug is more in major depression. Does your company make this type of ketamine or is it just that your company administers it? Are you involved in actually the manufacturing of it? Two answers. The first is that currently we, we implement ketamine. We do it as part of the best practice. And the ketamine that we are giving to our patients in our clinic today is not ketamine that we personally, our team has synthesized. That being said, is that we are going to be synthesizing our own 
forms of ketamine. Now, I'll give you kind of the, the short version of this, the wiki version of this. Ketamine is an interesting molecule on so many levels. One other way it's interesting is that ketamine is kind of two drugs in one. We call those enantiomers, but really it's like having a, a pair of gloves. And many medications in medicine exist chemically like a left and a right hand of a glove put together. And we have the ability to separate those out. We call those enantiomers. In addition, ketamine's metabolized into a variety of metabolites. And what's really interesting about ketamine is that some of these metabolites and perhaps these enantiomers may also be antidepressant and may also be safer. Maybe they don't cause as much dissociation. Maybe they don't cause as much cardiac problems. So we think that the advances in ketamine so far, it's amazing the FDA calls it a breakthrough drug. We agree with that. But this is the first chapter in a 20 to 30 chapter book of other drugs that could be derivatives of ketamine that might be better and or might be safer. And at Champignon, we are going to be synthesizing some of these metabolites or offspring of ketamine that look pharmacologically very promising, place them in our own delivery devices, whether it be intranasal or what have you. Uh, maybe, maybe it might even be a pill, it might be a, a lotion, a cream that we could deliver to people in a way that's obviously much easier and more scalable than would be giving it IV. And all of what I'm talking about, this creating our own metabolites or enantiomers or delivery methods, that all has IP capability, intellectual property capability, and we think that's an important part of what we do. Do you foresee a time when you won't need to have doctors present administering when you talk about lotions? And could it be something that maybe even somebody could buy over the counter? It's a great question because your question speaking to one of the great deficiencies in medicine and psychiatry today, and that's scale. It's access to the treatment. If the treatment requires the physician to be there on site to constantly do this, that is frankly not going to meet the needs of the pop, of the pop, uh, the general public. It's not going to meet the needs. We don't have enough psychiatrists. I mean, we never will. So the answer to your question is it must go there. Now, I always say that the first thing you, you want to do when you prescribe a medication is don't hurt the patient. In other words, job number one in pharmacology is don't hurt the patient. So safety is absolutely first. And now safety doesn't mean we get we're paralysis, you know, paralysis with indecision. It means safety. So in our quest, in our ambition to increase the scale and the availability, we don't want to forget that these are serious medications. We also, in fact, need to make sure they're being given according to best practices, people who are experts in it. But all that being said, Absolutely. For us, in fact, to have the impact on the unmet need of the general population, we have to get this to a point where it can be delivered safely and effectively by non-physicians. And I think that's just, I think anyone in population health would have to agree with that. We, we just have to increase the scale. So that is what we're involved in. We're going to be looking at these different formulations that could be applied. Now, there's a related question, but I want to address it, sort of the elephant in the room. Am I saying that eventually we'll get to the point where people will just pop into the drugstore and pick up a couple of ketamines and run home with it? I don't think it's going to be quite like that. I think, in fact, that there will still be a need for oversight. These are, this is a scheduled drug. But as you know, 
with scheduled drugs, it depends on the concentration that's in the actual you know, pill or, or cream or what have you. So there could be, and of course, the science has to prove this, the possibility that we could give ketamine in much, much lower doses once people have gotten well. So imagine you have a migraine, horrific migraine headache. You go to the emergency room, you get a treatment, they get rid of your migraine, but to keep your migraines from coming back, you can maybe take a low dose of something that just keeps it at bay. That's a similar model we're thinking about for depression. That's, it may be required to go to that medical center to abort this thing, but or, you know, to get rid of it. But then in fact, once you're well, perhaps in fact, we can transition you to a less intensive delivery method. And perhaps even with less of a dose, maybe, don't know that, that would obviate the need, in other words, bypass the need to have intensive medical personnel that has cost implications, it has access implications, it has scale implications. So you've worked with psych about other psychedelic-based medicine. Have you done some work with cannabis? No, I was approached to do work with cannabis and I was reluctant to do work with cannabis. I didn't do any work with cannabis because the evidence for cannabis did not provide a reason to believe. I've always said that it's easier to believe what's believable. And there was really nothing that was believable that cannabis would, be, would help people with depression. Just to be clear, my area of expertise is in mood disorders. I don't have expertise in pain or in HIV or cancer or epilepsy, things of that nature. And I'm told by colleagues that the cannabis has certain roles there and I'll just defer to their expertise. But my area, my wheelhouse is in depression. To be perfectly blunt, cannabis has really been highly problematic in that population. It worsens depression. It worsens the performance of antidepressants. It causes terrible cognitive impairment and increases the risk of developing psychosis. So that doesn't add up to a very good uh, proposition. Now, you know that cannabis is comprised, depends on the cannabis, of hundreds of different chemicals. And I think there's a different conversation when we get into things like CBD, cannabidiol, purified and, and you know, pharmacologic grade. And I think there is a testable hypothesis, not a recommendation, but a testable hypothesis that CBD perhaps could have some therapeutic effects in certain aspects of depression, but I would never recommend it to a patient. I don't think it's been proven safe or effective, but there's a testable hypothesis. But recreational cannabis, definitely not. I would be a strong proponent of don't do it. Right. As far as other psychedelics that you do work with, though, that have been shown to, to help with depression, what have you worked with? Well, the other one I work with is, is psilocybin, which is the active moiety in mu magic mushrooms. And psilocybin is what we call, it's a pro-drug. All of what that means in our business is, is that psilocybin in and of itself is, is inert. It doesn't have any effect. Your body converts it to an active substance called psilocin. And psilocin is a well-known psychedelic. And, and of course, people who know the mushroom literature know that. And we've started, we did a study last year. We started a study uh, last year with that. And I would just say at this point in time, and that was with another company, by the way, just for full disclosure. But I will say at this point in time, we just don't know. We just at this point do not have sufficient empirical evidence that psilocybin is safe or that it's effective in major depression. So it is a testable hypothesis that it is, but we don't know that. But have you personally tried the microdosing of ketamine? Have you, as a, you know, you've prescribed it, obviously, you find it effective? Yeah. No, no, I'm a psychiatrist and I'm a pharmacologist and, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be on the record that I'm very frightened of taking medication. How's that? And it's that fear and fright that I take to work every day before I ever prescribe medications or I develop them because safety has to come first. No, I've actually never used uh, ketamine. I've never used psilocybin or ecstasy. So 
I'll have to defer to the testimonials of those who have to provide guidance to me on that. But I, I'm naive to those medications. Well, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much, Dr. McIntyre, for taking the time to talk to us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for covering the topic. It's, been, it's just been a pleasure. All right. Thank you for listening to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, you can go to greenentrepreneur.com or check out our magazine on newsstands everywhere. Check out our Instagram at Green Entrepreneur. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all other social media feeds. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more from me, Jonathan Small, check out my other podcast, Right About Now, that's W-R-I-T-E, to get some in-depth interviews into the lives and stories of successful writers, how they got there, what they learned, and what you need to succeed. That's writeaboutnowmedia.com. Until next episode, we'll THC you later. <laughs>